In our first two episodes, we discussed how different performance choices in The Taming of the Shrew can lead to radically different interpretations and meanings for the play, especially when it comes to the taming plot and the relationship between Catherine and Petruchio. In this episode, we'll help you hear those differences for yourself with speeches performed in two different ways. In 2019, the Royal Shakespeare Company put on a production of The Taming of the Shrew, with gender roles reversed. In this production, directed by Justin Audibert, the male characters were played by women and the female characters were played by men. The two lead characters were Petruchia, played by female actor Claire Price, and Catherine, played by male actor Joseph Arkley. In this episode, you'll hear a speech of Petruchio's performed by Claire Price, first with the gender pronouns as Shakespeare originally wrote them, then you'll hear the speech with the gender pronouns reversed, as they were in the RSC production. You'll then hear a speech of Catherine's performed in the same two ways, by actor Joseph Arkley. As you listen, consider how these differences in performance change the way you understand and respond to the speeches, especially to the questions they raise about gender roles and relationships. Emma Smith, Professor of Shakespeare Studies at the University of Oxford, guides our discussion. Our first speech comes from Act 4. Following their wedding, Petruchio has brought Catherine back to his home where he begins his taming. He withholds food from her, keeps her from sleeping, and shows angry violence towards his servants, not unlike what Catherine showed to her sister and neighbours. One servant says, He kills her in her own humour. Does this mean that Petruchio is, in fact, as erratic, bad-tempered and violent as everyone believes Catherine to be? Or does it mean that Petruchio is deliberately mirroring Catherine's own behaviour back to her for a strategic purpose? This speech that he gives alone on stage, addressed directly to the audience, can shed light on those questions. Thus have I politically begun my reign, and tis my hope to end successfully. My falcon now is sharp and passing empty, and till she stoop, she must not be full-gorged for then she never looks upon her lure. Another way I have to man my haggard, to make her come and know her keeper's call, that is to watch her, as we watch these kites that bait and beat and will not be obedient. She ate no meat today, nor none shall eat. Last night she slept not, nor tonight she shall not. As with the meat, some undeserved fault I'll find about the making of the bed. And here I'll fulling the pillow, there the bolster, this way the coverlet, another way the sheets. Aye, and amid this hurly, I intend that all is done in reverent care of her. And in conclusion, she shall watch all night. And if she chance to nod, I'll rail and brawl, and with the clamour keep her still awake. This is a way to kill a wife with kindness. And thus I'll curb her mad and headstrong humour. He that knows better how to tame a shrew, now let him speak. Tis charity to show. I think this is a great speech by Petruchio. It's actually one of the 
only, perhaps even the only uh, soliloquy in the play. The servants have left uh, the stage and Petruchio is speaking directly uh, to the audience. He's directly addressing them and daring them in a way to intervene in the play. He that knows better how to tame a shrew, now let him speak. Tis charity to show. Sort of wondering how an audience, how a more rambunctious audience in the Elizabethan period might have reacted to that. Would they have been cheering or sort of encouraging Petruchio in this behaviour or would there have been some sense that he's gone too far? But what's so interesting about that rhetorically is he's asking for the audience's approbation. He's asking for them to go along with him. So he's describing what he has uh, done in particular as part of a strategy. What's interesting about this speech, this isn't sort of random cruelty, or or, so Petruchio says at least, this is not random cruelty or the random assertion of his will over hers. This is a training programme. And he does that with the word politically, you know, suggesting this is all under control. And more extremely through this extended imagery from falconry, My falcon now is sharp and passing empty. And loads of the words, particularly the words perhaps that are not fully familiar to us from this speech, come from the technical vocabulary of of falconry. Uh, Stoop, uh, full-gorged, lure, haggard, bait and beat. These are all terms from this very high-status sport in the period, falconry. I actually went on a falconry course to try to understand these metaphors in Shakespeare and, and other playwrights a bit better. I was with three other people, and the three of them wanted to get birds and you know do hunting with birds. And when they said, you know, what, what about you? I said, I want to understand Shakespeare's plays, which I think just marked me out as the kind of weirdest person in the world. But I'll tell you what I learned from that, which I think is relevant here. One thing is... You never train a falcon. Okay, so it's not like a horse or a dog. A falcon, you're always in a tussle with it about who's boss and you mainly assert your authority, your continued authority over it by keeping it short of food. And so that when it flies off, it's hungry and the easiest way to get food is to come back to you. And if you let it fly off when it's not hungry, the wisdom is it will never come back or you know it's going to be an absolute uh, job to get it back. And that seemed really interesting to me. So it's a slightly self-defeating metaphor. Maybe see Petruchio's speech a little bit differently. He's talking about a strategy for taming, t- taming his falcon, taming Catherine. But the very extended image that he uses dooms it to failure in a way. Because the one thing I learned from my falconry course is those birds just they they are their own, you know, they are their own selves. They keep that. Uh, and you're not going to break that, uh, and that they're much stronger spirited in a way than than horses or dogs or other things that you might train. So that's an interesting kind of sideline. Maybe this is quite widespread knowledge in Shakespeare's England, the sense that Catherine is not going to be broken by this treatment, but that it's a treatment perhaps which allows keeper and bird in the falconry imagery to operate more effectively together as a team. That's possible. It is possible that Petruchio imagines and hopes for some kind of mutual harmony in their marriage, with himself and Catherine working together as partners. He seeks to accomplish this, some critics suggest, through performance or acting. 
He acts out one kind of role, the role of violent, shrewish husband, to help Catherine learn a different kind of role, a more sociable but still spirited companion, who can maintain some independence while also being more compliant towards others, especially her husband. The idea of role-playing is key. Petruchio in this speech chooses to cast himself in the role of falcon keeper and Catherine in the role of bird. He may have a sense that society too chooses to cast men and women in certain roles, which may not reflect any real superiority of one gender over the other. These conventional gender roles do, however, reflect what might be seen as socially advantageous ways of behaving. Petruchio may be seeking to help Catherine perform the role of obedient wife in a way that will benefit her as well as himself. Critic Jean Howard asks, As Petruchio attempts to transform Kate from shrew to obedient spouse, is he forcing her to deform her nature, or helping her experiment with a role that might bring out untapped aspects of her personality, or lead to greater control of her social environment? At Bianca's wedding, when Catherine makes her speech about women's duty to men, she may be performing a role in just this way – acting out the obedient wife to secure more social credit for herself and Petruchio and to have the fun of upending everyone's expectations about her. Knowing this role is only a role, and knowing that Petruchio knows this too, may release Catherine from oppressive ideologies about women's real inferiority and enable her to compromise within her marriage without feeling she is actually compromising her self-worth. This is one of the most optimistic readings of The Taming Plot, that Petruchio is playing an intelligent game and that Catherine is both tamed and liberated when she learns eagerly to play along. As critic Jonathan Bate puts it, the very artfulness of game-playing, of theatre, offers a form of release from the pressures of patriarchal, mercantile society. In other ways, of course, this reading still leaves us uncomfortable. It seems to offer too much justification for Petruchio's coercive methods, and place too much criticism on Catherine herself. But perhaps what this fictional world represents will always make us uncomfortable. Then he goes along about this feeding. That too is about falconry training. Uh, One of the things that you need to do is to undergo a period of starvation for for the bird. But then these more human factors about the bed and Patricia saying this is all done in reverent care of her. To to unsettle someone's sense of their own perception is to... I mean, it's, it's what we would now call gaslighting, isn't it? I mean, it's it's exactly to turn the the violence and the self-doubt and to make the person internalise that rather than accept it as something from outside. So back to the idea of gaslighting in a way that it is going to be saying, you know, this, this isn't good enough for you or this isn't comfortable enough, so let's rip it all off and start again. So it's a cruelty or a kind of form of reformation which is under the guise of, of kindness. And this is the way, he says, to kill a wife with kindness. 
There's a later play called A Woman Killed with Kindness. It's a a proverbial phrase uh, and it's about a sort of, uh, as it suggests, a kind of weaponised show of concern for the wife, which is more effective as a controlling mechanism perhaps than out-and-out fury or cruelty would be. And thus I'll curb her mad and headstrong humour. Now, throughout the conversation, though, we've been we've been wondering whether there is an aspect of Catherine. It, it, it's, hard, it's hard to say, isn't it, because it's so deeply unfeminist. It so deeply goes against a lot of what we might think about the real world. But if we remember that this isn't the real world, this is a this is a play play world, this is a fictional world, this is make-believe. Catherine isn't a real person. Are we being presented with a figure in the play whose behaviour does need modification in order that she can live a more interesting and a more fulfilled and a more contented, uh, a more productive, creative, communal life? Comedies are all about people uh, needing to live together and to be in societies of difference, whereas tragedies are about people really needing to be on their own and to to get away on on their own. But maybe Catherine isn't a very comic figure in her early manifestations in the play because she can't really live with anyone else. She's not a productive or settled part of those that communal vision of Padua. So maybe there is behind the self-serving, self-deluded perhaps, self-justifying rhetoric here by Petruchio. Maybe there is an underlying sense that Catherine can be a better, she's got her better self somehow, which maybe can be can be brought out. I don't really know what I think about that. I feel, I feel as if I would never say that in lots of other contexts and I don't know whether I'm right to say it even about the play. Thus have I politically begun my reign. And tis my hope to end successfully. My falcon now is sharp and passing empty, and till he stoop, he must not be full-gorged, for then he never looks upon his lure. Another way I have to tame my falcon, to make him come and know his keeper's call, that is to watch him, as we watch these kites that bait and beat and will not be obedient. He ate no meat today, nor none shall eat. Last night he slept not, (laughs) nor tonight he shall not. As with the meat, some undeserved fault I'll find about the making of the bed. And here I'll fling the pillow, there the bolster, this way the coverlet, another way the sheets, I, and amid this hurly, I intend that all is done in reverent care of him. And in conclusion he shall watch all night. And if he chance to nod, I'll rail and brawl and with the clamour keep him still awake. This is a way to kill a husband, with kindness, and thus I'll curb his mad and headstrong humour. She that knows better how to tame a shrew, now let her speak. Tis charity to show. Our next speech comes from Act 5, at Bianca's wedding. Petruchio has just made a bet with Hortensio and Lucentio that his wife will be the most obedient of all, and to everyone's stunned surprise, he is proved right. Petruchio then says, Catherine, I charge thee tell these headstrong women what duty they do owe their lords and husbands. Catherine addresses this speech to Hortensio's wife and to her sister, Bianca, apparently emphasising just what Petruchio said – women's duty. 
But what this speech really signifies, and what it registers about Catherine's taming, is one of the play's most open questions. Fie, fie, unknit that threatening, unkind brow, and dart not scornful glances from those eyes. To wound thy lord, thy king, thy governor. It blots thy beauty as frosts do bite the meads, confounds thy fame as whirlwinds shake fair buds, and in no sense is meet or amiable. A woman moved is like a fountain troubled, muddy, ill-seeming, thick, bereft of beauty, and while it is so, none so dry or thirsty will deign to sip or touch one drop of it. Thy husband is thy lord, thy life. Thy keeper, thy head, thy sovereign, one that cares for thee, and for thy maintenance commits his body to painful labour both by sea and land, to watch the night in storms, the day in cold, while thou liest warm at home, secure and safe, and craves no other tribute at thy hands but love, fair looks, and true obedience. Too little payment for so great a debt. Such duty as the subject owes the prince even such a woman oweth to her husband. And when she is froward, peevish, sullen, sour, and not obedient to his honest will, what is she but a foul contending rebel, a graceless traitor to her loving lord? I am ashamed that women are so simple. To offer war where they should kneel for peace or seek for rule, supremacy, and sway when they are bound to serve, love, and obey? Why are our bodies soft and weak and smooth, unapt to toil and trouble in the world, but that our soft conditions and our hearts should well agree with our external parts? Come, come, you froward and unable worms, my mind hath been as big as one of yours, my heart as great, my reason haply more, to bandy word for word and frown for frown. But now I see our lances are but straws, our strength as weak, our weakness past compare, that seeming to be most which we indeed least are. Then veil your stomachs, for it is no boot, and place your hands below your husband's foot, in token of which duty, if he please, my hand is ready. May it do him ease. This final speech by Catherine is a, is a really extraordinary showstopper. For one thing, it's much, much the longest speech in the play. So comedies don't really do long speeches, they do dialogue because of their social and communal sense of personhood. You reveal yourself by talking with other people. In tragedies, you reveal yourself by talking on your own, by talking about your inner life in some way. So Catherine's not talking about her inner life, she's talking very publicly and with a message for public consumption. But it's a hugely long speech compared to anything else that we've had in, in the play. And that's the first thing in a way to say about it, because it raises questions about what everyone else is doing on stage. 
you know, they're all there. Are they approving? Are they uncomfortable? Are they, you know, disbelieving? What support are the other actors giving to any, you know, the particular interpretation? And I suppose the second thing to say about it is that it's a speech ostensibly about women's subjection to their husbands. That thy lord, thy king, thy governor... Thy husband is thy thy lord, thy life, thy keeper, thy head, thy sovereign. So these are all unequal relationships of unequal power relationships. So on the one hand, it's about subjection to your husband. On the other hand, it's so long. I mean, there must be a point where if you talk for, I guess this is about five minutes, four or five minutes. That's a long time. Uh, on long, long time on the stage. If you talk for four or five minutes about how women should be subjected uh, to to their husbands, c- could that possibly be what you were really saying? Because just the act of speaking and holding the stage without interruption for all that time seems to be really about f- female assertion. One thing that we might look at is the particular kind of relationship that Catherine is proposing here. It's what historians sometimes call the idea of companion at marriage, companion at marriage, which means the something like we talked about in, in terms of those conduct books. That's to say the reciprocal obligations of uh, husband and wife or by extension or by analogy, master and servant, parent and child, other uh, sovereign and subject. These are all relationships which are unequal in in status, but which require something of both parties uh, and that both parties are required to do their bit of the bargain to make the relationship work. And so Catherine says, you know, what your husband has to do is to look after you. He has to go through the effort of working, commits his body to painful labour, both by sea and land. He does all that while you liest warm at home, secure and safe. And then she says, you know, all your husband wants when he comes back is love, fair looks and true obedience. You know, so all he asks for is that when he comes back home, you are nice, you know, nice to him and pour, pour pour him a drink. Now, that's a classic piece of companionate marriage. It, it's it's obviously slightly odd in context, since we know by definition that Petruchio does not want to work. He's He's got all his money in the dowry uh, of this rich wife. So his part of the bargain perhaps isn't going to happen. And even this speech is trying to earn some money for him in a bet. You know, these are all ways of getting money which are not this male labour which Catherine seems to be uh, valorising. But we go through this, what used to be called the Elizabethan world picture. People might have heard of that. So the Elizabethan world picture was a an idea of how the Elizabethans thought. And basically it was that they thought everything had its place. And at the bottom there was, I don't know, like mould or something or snails. And at the top there were angels and then God. And in between we all had our place in the hierarchy and everybody's place in the hierarchy was secured by the things above and the things below it Uh, and it was a picture of order and the cosmos kind of laid out all in two dimensions so you could see where everything was at any one time so it's an absolute emblem of an orderly and hierarchical society now I think the Elizabethan world picture is probably poppycock, to be honest. This is the era of the self-made man, for one thing. People are making money. It's an early capitalist society. People are uh, elevated far beyond their birth and, you know, changing their social position, all that kind of thing, for one thing. And 
you know, people are, are challenging for certain kinds of monarchical rights and even certain ideas about about God. Lots of people don't subscribe to the fixity that the Elizabethan world picture uh, suggests. And it may be that it was a sort of retrofitted attempt to, you know, keep everything in its place rather than a description. It's a prescription, not a description, I suppose would be the best way of putting that. But Catherine here has an Elizabethan world picture kind of view of things. The subject owes the prince a duty, the woman owes her husband a duty. If the woman isn't doesn't do what she should to her husband, then she's a rebel and a traitor. She's c- committing the, the act of uh, petty treason, which was uh, a, a statute which w- was for women who killed their husbands. What they were tr- accused of was not murder, but petty treason. That's to say a version of the challenge to authority, that uh, treason in the political sphere would involve. So she's giving a kind of world picture view. Again, perhaps ironically, I mean, when she comes, come, come, you froward and unable worms. You think, well, goodness me, something that you would take seriously? Or do you think, you know, calling calling us worms is, is a bit bit too much? It's a speech which teeters between, as I say, submission and being sufficiently outrageous to raise an eyebrow or to make you think as it proceeds. Is she, is she really serious? Is this really, is this kind of ironic? And the other thing I'd point out about it is, the, is rhyming. So one of the things you'll see as you move through Shakespeare, sort of chronologically, is that early Shakespeare quite often uses rhymed couplets uh, and late Shakespeare very rarely does. And in the middle, we tend to get rhymed couplets at the end of scenes to give a kind of uh, a finishing off kind of shape. Now, we don't get an awful lot of rhyme, actually, in Taming of the Shrew, but this speech by Catherine does have quite a lot. It takes a while perhaps to settle into it and that too is interesting. You know, I was saying a minute ago, as it keeps going, do you think, you know, am I getting drawn further and further into this Stepford Wives kind of moment or am I just being pushed further and further away and thinking you are not serious, sister? It's not really till we get to, for example, sway and obey and then a little bit further down, hearts, parts, and then maybe compare our boot, foot, please, ease. You think, well, what's that rhyme doing here? Is it is it settling us into the sort of poetic or syntactic version of the Elizabethan world picture? You know, everything's fixed in its place. One of the things rhyme does is to fix the line ending by, by, by making it echo. Or is this a kind of sing-song? I've learnt this. One of the functions of rhyme is to make lines easier to learn. Is this a Catherine who's learnt this off by heart, this great long sort of set-piece speech, and is using using the rhymes as a kind of crutch to get, to get through it, rather than speaking it, as it were, uh, from the heart? So there are loads of things uh, to to think about here, and it's it, it. I think it's a speech which you could do in all kinds of different ways. Just in the last sort of thirty years on the stage, we've seen everything from a Catherine who has, in fact, cut her own wrists as a an escape from this awful brainwashing, and is slumping into her own death at the end. So that that's a pretty dark reading of it to the kind of jaunty or knowing kind of take that I think Elizabeth Taylor gives it in in the Burton Taylor film. And the question of what gesture she is doing at the end of the speech, my hand is ready, may it do him ease. She's saying to the women, you should put your hands under your husband's foot just, just to show that you submit to him. 
Now, that's a very different stage picture if at that point she crouches down and is, you know, physically so much lower than Petruchio and, and physically abject. Or if she, for example, folds her arms and says, you know, go on, ask me, you know, I dare you. These are all open for actors to play with. And that's because it's so important in the plot in uh, trying to secure whether this taming has been successful and what that success signals. The ambiguities here are just absolutely wonderful, I think. Fie, fie, unknit that threatening, unkind brow and dart not scornful glances from those eyes to wound thy lady, thy queen, thy governor. It blots thy beauty as frosts do bite the meads, confounds thy fame as whirlwinds shake fair buds, and in no sense is meet or amiable. A man moved is like a fountain troubled, muddy, ill-seeming, thick, bereft of beauty. And while it is so, none so dry or thirsty will deign to sip or touch one drop of it. Thy wife is thy lady, thy life. Thy keeper, thy head, thy sovereign, one that cares for thee, and for thy maintenance commits her body to painful labour both by sea and land, to watch the night in storms, the day in cold, whilst thou liest warm at home, secure and safe, and craves no other tribute at thy hands but love, fair looks, and true obedience. Too little payment for so great a debt. Such duty as the subject owes the queen. Even such a man oweth to his wife. And when he is froward, peevish, sullen, sour, and not obedient to her honest will, what is he but a foul contending rebel, a graceless traitor to his loving lady? I am ashamed that men are so simple to offer war when they should kneel for peace or seek for rule supremacy and sway when they are bound to serve love and obey why are our bodies soft and weak and smooth unapt to toil and trouble in this world but that our soft conditions and our hearts should well agree with our external parts Come, come, you froward unenable worms. My mind hath been as big as one of yours. My heart as great, my reason haply more. To bandy word for word and frown for frown. But now I see our lances are but straws. Our strength as weak, our weakness past compare. That seeming to be most, which we indeed least are. Then veil your stomachs, for tis no boot, and place your hands below your dear wife's foot, in token of which duty, if she please. My hand is ready. May it do her ease.
Shakespeare for All is written and produced by Maria Devlin McNair. Executive producer is Zachary Davis. Associate producer and narrator is Gemma Deer. Original music and sound design is by Jack Pombrion. This episode featured performances by the following actors. Claire Price for Petruchio, Petruchia. Thus have I politically begun my reign. Joseph Arkley for Kate. Fi, fi, unknit that threatening, unkind brow. For this course, information was drawn from and ideas were inspired by the following sources. Marjorie Garber, Shakespeare After All. Karen Newman, A Modern Perspective, The Taming of the Shrew. Emma Smith, This is Shakespeare. And the following editions of The Taming of the Shrew. The 2010 Arden Shakespeare, the 2010 RSC Shakespeare, and the 2016 Norton Shakespeare. Shakespeare for All is a Lyceum original production and available wherever you get your podcasts. Learn more about the show by visiting shakespeareforall.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.